Well, as they say, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. I was 21 years old. I was getting to the end of my university degree and I was looking for a bit of money to help me out on the way through. So I enrolled in a taxi driver course at the Least Cost Taxi Centre. Now that name should have been enough warning, shouldn't it? The Least Cost Taxi Training Centre. Anyway, I paid my fees in full and I rocked up for the first week of what was about two weeks of training. It was in this rundown room in a back alley of Sydney. The room was so dark I could hardly read the papers that I was given that looked like a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy. It was so full of cigarette smoke I could hardly breathe. Even the instructors were just smoking non-stop. They were rough as guts. Now, in order to become a taxi driver back then, you, have to do, you had to do a multiple-choice test on a computer, OK? There was no internet. This was before internet. And the test had lots of questions about Sydney because they wanted taxi drivers to know their way around the city. So there were questions like this. This is an exact one. I can't remember. It was, a long, it was 25 years ago. But it was like this. You need to drive a passenger from the Opera House to the SCG. What's the fastest route? A, Parramatta Road. B, Oxford Street, and so on. But the least cost taxi centre had worked out that to pass this exam, you didn't need to know a thing about Sydney at all. All you needed to know was which was the right answer for each question, A, B, C, or D, because the questions were the same every time. They were just pulled out of a pool of about 400 questions. So they taught us rhymes on each question to know the answer. Coogee to Manly is by the sea, the answer is D. Doyle's Seafood Restaurant. Seafood, the answer is C. Uh, This was the bodgiest organisation I had ever come across. (laughs) But the straw that broke the camel's back was when I had finished all the training, they added an extra test onto the end of the course that I had to pay more money to finish. Now, the amount wasn't that much and it was a very simple test. I think it involved filling up a taxi with gas. But it was the straw that broke the camel's back. I had had enough. I just completely walked away away from it. If that's what you had to do to be a taxi driver, I didn't want to be one. I threw the whole thing in. Now, Least Cost cost Taxi Centre went out of business not long after. I sort of checked that up because I didn't want to say too many things about them if they were still going. (laughs) Have you ever had an experience like that where something just wears you down and it wears you down and then... You just get to the point where you give up. Not that the point where you give up is anything particularly bad, but you have just had enough. Now, that's a fairly trivial example, but sometimes there are things in life like that, aren't there? They just wear us down. Now, as we jump back into 1 Samuel again today, we've had a bit of a break, but this is exactly where David is at. You might remember, David has been on the run. Saul has been trying to kill kill David since chapter 18. We're now at chapter 27. That's quite a bit later. And there's nothing particularly new or bad or a big threat that happens here in chapter 27. It's just that David is worn out. He's human. He's had enough. He's overwhelmed. And so today we're going to look at, firstly, what David did when he was feeling overwhelmed. You can see that on your outline, point one. Uh, Then we're going to look at what Jesus did when he was overwhelmed. 
Alan's already kind of given us a bit of a hint of that in the passage that we looked at. And then we're going to think about what this means for us because, as we've already seen, everything we learn about David here is to help us appreciate Jesus. So what encouragement does this passage hold for us when we're overwhelmed? When we're pushed to our limits, how does God, what does God want us to do when we feel like we can't cope? Okay, so David, then Jesus, then us. Open your Bible to 1 Samuel 27 if you haven't already. And in verse 1, we are taken inside of David's head and we catch a glimpse about what he's thinking. Verse 1. But David thought to himself, One of these days I shall be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel and I will slip out of his hand. Now that there verse is the key to understanding this chapter. For the whole rest of the chapter we find out what David does, but here we find out why he does it. And I think verse 1 is so important that we're going to leave it for now. We're going to look at the rest of the chapter and then we're going to come back at the end and look at verse 1 and see how it helps us understand what's happening in this chapter. So let's have a look at what it is that David does when he's feeling overwhelmed. Verse 2. So David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, the son of Moak, king of Gath. So what David and his men do is they leave the nation of Israel and they join the Philistines in Gath. Now the Philistines are the enemies of God's people. You might remember that Gath is where Goliath came from, the biggest threat to the Israelites. And if you've got a really good memory, you'll remember that David already tried escaping to Gath back in chapter 21. That ended really badly. Because back then it was this same king, King Achish, but he tried to kill David. And you remember David had to pretend to be a madman and he frothed at the mouth and put saliva all over his beard. And Achish thought he was a madman and he let him go. But something's different this time, isn't it? Because this time David isn't just hiding in Gath. No, David has actually changed sides. He's put himself under King Achish. Verse 2 says that David went over to Achish. Some translations have he crossed over. It seems that David has made some kind of a treaty. We see that as we read on. Have a look at verse 3. David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. As we read on, David goes so far as even he calls himself Achish's servant down in verse 5. See, David isn't hiding this time. He's living with the Philistines. Now, the Philistines are currently at war with Israel and at war with Saul, David's king. David has gone over to the enemy. This would be like the Prime Minister of Australia going over and joining the Taliban. This is a scandal. This is completely unheard of. This is totally wrong. And just to make sure that we don't miss it, from verse 5 onwards we see some of the details of this treaty or whatever it is that David makes. Verse 5. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favour in your eyes, 
Let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? On that day, Achish gave him Ziklag, and it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. David lived in Philistine territory for a year and four months. And in return for this protection that David gets from King Achish, David fights for him. Or at least that's what it looks like. But it turns out that David is playing a fairly tricky and deceitful game. David is telling the king that he's fighting for him, but in reality, he's fighting a different group of people altogether than what the king think, who the king thinks he's fighting. Have a look. Have a look firstly who it is that David is actually going out and fighting. Verse 8. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. Now those names, those tribes, those peoples are actually the enemies of the Israelites. Okay, they are the people who David would be fighting even if he hadn't changed sides. But look at who it is that David says he's fighting in verse 10. When Achish asked, where did you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of Jehormiel, or against the Negev of... So, in other words, David is saying that he's fighting the Israelites, his own people. Now, how does he get away with that? How can he just tell the king he's fighting one group of people, but he's fighting a completely different group? Well, the reason he's getting away with it is because when he attacks a town, he kills everyone. He massacres them, so there's no one left to report what he's doing. Verse 11. He did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought, they might inform on us and say, this is what David did. As such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. What is going on there? That's weird. That's terrible. I mean, if, you, if you, the most positive spin you could put on it would be to say that it is if David is somehow like being a double agent. He's pretending to fight for the king of Gath, but in his heart, he's still on the side of Israel. Whatever the case, the king, Achish, he's completely sucked in by it. Verse 12, Achish trusted David and said to himself, David has become so odious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant forever. So he thinks David is genuinely on his side, which almost makes David look like a hero, you know, tricking the great king Achish, playing him like a fool. Now, there's no doubt David must have been very clever to be able to pull all this off. Think about it. He has completely fooled one of the great Philistine kings right under his nose. In fact, back in 1 Samuel 23, verse 22, Saul described David as crafty. And David here is being crafty. He must have a good poker face. He's an expert liar. Now, is that the kind of leader Israel need? Is that the kind of king God's people need? A king who is crafty, lying, ruthless, deceitful? 
Is that what God saw in David back in chapter 16 when he chose David? You know, when Jesse brought his sons in front of Samuel one by one and Samuel said, this is not the one and this is not the one and this is not the one. And then eventually David came and Samuel said, this is the one. Do you remember what Samuel said there? The Lord doesn't look at outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. Is this the kind of heart God saw in David? A cunning, deceitful heart? Is that the kind of king God is after? Surely not. If we've learned anything from 1 Samuel, it is that God wants a king who has a heart for him. God wants a king who will trust him. And that's the big problem of this chapter because that's what's driving this chapter. That's what verse 1 was all about. Because this was set up in verse 1 when we had a glimpse into David's heart and David here is not trusting God. Come back with me and look at verse 1. 27 verse 1. But David thought to himself, one of these days I shall be destroyed, I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. See, David thinks that Saul's going to kill him. Why would David be thinking that? David should know better than that because God has promised to David that he won't be destroyed by Saul. In fact, we've seen that promise again and again in 1 Samuel. God announced it in chapter 16, David will be king. We were reminded about it in chapter 23 by Jonathan where he said to David, you shall be king over Israel. We're reminded about it when Abigail prophesied in chapter 24, I know that you will surely be king. Samuel, directly from God, has told David that he will be king. And time and time again, God has delivered David out of Saul's hand. If anything is clear from what we've been reading up to this point in 1 Samuel, it is that David will be king. But David has completely lost sight of God's promise. Verse 1, David thought to himself, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Now you might remember there was actually a prophet a few chapters back that told David, get out of the land of the Philistines and go back to Judah. David is mistrusting and disobeying God. The other night, uh, just last week, in fact, I was driving into Dubbo along Whitewood Road right on sunset. And at this time of the year, the angle of the sun sets so that it is right in your eyes. I couldn't see a thing. I was completely blinded. I had to slow right down and pull over. I couldn't even see the road. It's as if David here has been completely blinded by this threat from Saul. It's all he can see, Saul. And he's lost sight of God's promises for the future. And that's dangerous. All David can see is that Saul wants to kill him. And so instead of relying what God has promised in the past, David takes things into his own hands. He relies on his cunning his cleverness, and it is going to get him into trouble, big trouble, and we will see this when we read on in two chapters over the next few weeks. It's going to end in disaster for David. Now, what should David have done? 
He has been on the run from Saul a lot. When David is feeling overwhelmed, afraid, what should David have done? Well, turn with me to Matthew 26, that chapter that Al read at the start of the meeting. Because in Matthew 26, we get to watch in on the thoughts of another Lord's anointed who was feeling overwhelmed. But this king did trust God's promises. Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He's not going over to the other side. He's going to pray to his heavenly father. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Now, Jesus here is overwhelmed because he is about to face not just the wrath of a human king, but he's about to face God's judgment. Not God's judgment for what Jesus had done wrong. No, he didn't do anything wrong, remember. Jesus is about to take on himself the punishment for everything that we have done wrong. Jesus here is about to take away our punishment so we can be forgiven. What Jesus goes through here is unbearable. And how does he respond? Well, he could have said, like Saul, one of these days I'll be destroyed by the hand of Pontius Pilate. The best thing I can do is escape. He doesn't do that, does he? He could have used his power to escape. Jesus said, Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? He didn't do that, did he? He trusted God. Verse 39. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father... If it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. When Jesus was pushed to the end of his ability to endure, he placed himself totally in God's hands. He said, the best thing I can do is to do whatever God wants me to do. David couldn't obey God fully. None of us can obey God fully. But Jesus did. And that's why he was able to offer himself as a sacrifice in our place. He was perfect. And so surely our only response to that must be to come to Jesus and ask him for forgiveness. Have you done that yet? Because that's what Jesus would want you to do. That's why he died. That's why he went through this. But I want to dig a little bit deeper this morning and think about how it is that we should respond as followers of Jesus when we are pushed beyond our ability to endure. See, when life is especially hard and we feel like we can't cope, how does this passage today help us? Well, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. 
Hebrews is a bit after Matthew. I want to end in Hebrews because in Hebrews, Jesus, uh, the writer looks back on Jesus when he's in the garden and the writer of Hebrews encourages us to have the same attitude that Jesus had. Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, let's pick it up in verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. There's no doubt about it, life will get hard. And there are times that come along when we feel like we are pushed to our breaking point. And there will, times that, there will be times that come along when we feel like losing heart. Maybe you're at one of those times right now. And we can, we can be very easily blinded by what's going on around us and lose sight of God's plans. Hebrews encourages us to do what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? He looked forward to what God had promised in the future. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. See, Jesus did not lose sight of God's promises, and that's what the Bible encourages us to do to look forward to the new creation, to realise that this world and its troubles are passing away. They don't matter. A couple of years ago, when my mum was dying of a brain tumour, the three weeks before she died, I wasn't really ready for this. It was just so busy. It was chaotic. There were meetings with doctors, there were MRIs, there were CAT scans, there was decisions about end-of-life plans, and of course in all that there was caring for mum, taking turns to be at the hospital overnight. You pretty quickly get worn down. Now thankfully early on I decided that the most important thing in all that wasn't what happened to mum. The most important thing was that we kept trusting Jesus, that mum kept trusting Jesus. So thankfully... I made a promise with myself to pray with mum every time I visited. Now that might sound so easy just to pray with someone, but it was so hard because every time I visited, there was something to do. It was just busy. But I'm glad I made that decision because the most important thing when life is falling apart is that we look to Jesus We trust God. We pray. We look to him for strength. Now, John Piper's got a great book which he wrote when he had cancer, and it's called Don't Waste Your Cancer. Pretty much every Australian, whether it's themselves or a family member, will be impacted by cancer. This is a really good book to read, Don't Waste Your Cancer. Three of his statements stood out to me. Let me read them for you. We waste our cancer if we seek comfort from odds rather than from God. 
You know, I've got a 10% chance. I've got a 50% chance. I've got a 90% chance. We waste our cancer if we seek comfort from our odds rather than from God. We waste our cancer if we spend too much time reading about cancer and not enough time reading about God. It's not wrong to know about cancer, but what a waste of our cancer if we read day and night about cancer and not about God. The third one, we waste our cancer if we think that beating cancer means staying alive rather than cherishing Christ. Cancer does not win if we die. Cancer wins if we fail to cherish Christ. See, quite often when life is hard, when we hit those crisis points, there can be so many outside things going on that make it hard to pray, that make it hard to read the Bible. You might be feeling that at the moment. You might be worn out and tired and it's just physically hard to pray. You might be so overwhelmed by work or responsibilities that you think you don't have time to pray. You might be sick or in pain and you just can't think clearly. Look, there might even be court cases going on and it's all just too overwhelming. Or there might be family fighting and all you're thinking about is arguments. There might be conflict at work. There might be big decisions that you can't make and they're all consuming. The lesson from today's passage is that whatever it is that is overwhelming you, Look to Jesus. Look to the future. Look to the new creation. Don't put your trust in medical answers. Don't put your hope in your cleverness. Don't trust in your ability to make the right decisions. Don't put your hope in the results of a court case or a job interview. Put your hope in God. Cling to his promises for the future because he always keeps his promises. He never disappoints. And look, if life is good for you right at the moment, that is fantastic. But don't wait till life is hard to start relying on God. This is not just when life falls apart. This is for all of us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart.